Hi, my name's Hannah Finch, and I'm an editor at Leesman, the world's largest benchmarking and insight database on employee workplace experience. Since launching in 2010, we've probed and debated the subject with some of the world's best thought leaders. These podcasts aim to package up those debates for you. One of those fantastic thought leaders is here with me today. David Marquet is a former nuclear submarine commander, and he's the author of a best-selling book I'm sure many of you have read called Turn the Ship Around which describes how he transformed the worst performing submarine in the fleet to the best. And he has a new book out, Leadership is Language. What a time to release a book on leadership. We spoke about a year and a half ago. It was before this book, before your latest book, Leadership is Language had actually been released. And it's such interesting timing with the release, isn't it? Because it was early February. And sure enough, the whole world has shifted. And I think a lot of the leaders I've been speaking to in the last few months have talked about how they're leading in the dark and they feel like it's just so many unknown quantities when it comes to leading right now. And I'd love to hear from you because I think your first book is really about leading in the dark in a lot of ways and how how it was for you leading in a situation that you felt actually unprepared for. Yeah, leading in the dark kind of creates this scary visual image doesn't it it does but but here here's the thing you're not really in the dark we overweight our own personal perceptions so i may feel like the dark i may have 10 people around me who can see perfectly well but it still feels like i'm in the dark and this is sort of how it was when i took over the santa fe because i certainly felt My credibility as a leader, which was based on my knowledge of knowing every single specific detail of of how the ship worked and being the smartest person about every circuit diagrams, I mean, crazy detailed stuff, was all of a sudden ripped away. So for me, it was a life and death situation that I had to not be the one making decisions. And when I did try to make a decision, the crew would follow it, even if it was wrong. And we we want to think that that doesn't apply to us, that either I would never fall for that stupid trick or our people would be smarter and they would speak up because I've ordered them to. And I just read about a, an aviation accident that happened during World War II where the general was flying. He got a brand new co-pilot who was sort of overawed by the figure and the general well, did some innocuous uh, movement with his head. He was kind of just humming a tune to himself. And the person interpreted that as bring up the landing gear, but the, the plane was still going down the runway and wasn't, hadn't reached speed. And so he did, and the plane went down and a propeller blade severed the general's back and he became uh, paralyzed. And then he was interviewed afterwards. He said, well, why did you bring up the landing gear? He said, well, I thought the general was indicating to me to do it. And there was a sort of aura around them. And even though I knew, I said, but you knew we, the plane wasn't going fast enough. And he was like, yeah. And uh, you know, these are life and death situations. So anyway, I'm always reluctant to kind of think uh, somehow I'm special and immune to that. So the, it becomes even more important to understand what your people see. And I think a lot of times people undervalue the idea of description. Don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. So not only are you have to see the problem and the co- and then you got to figure out what the cause is, 
And then you got to figure out what an appropriate solution is. And it's generally a point solution. So this is very difficult and is actually not what you want. It's perfectly okay to say, bring me descriptions of problems. You don't, can't solve problems you don't know. What happens is when you say, there's a tax, if you want to bring me a problem, there's a tax. It's called, you have to also bring me a solution. Guess what happens? You get fewer problems. You know, you have the same number of problems or more, but you hear about fewer problems. So this is a very, very bad policy. So having people just simply describe, I'm not sure what to do here. Tell me more about it. Hey, you got this situation. Oh, uh, explain it. How do you see it from your side? What do you see? This is the first step to any kind of an empowerment program. And you, in, in that kind of a situation, you would still encourage that person to, to solve the problem. Well, you tell me, would you still encourage that person to solve the problem just through your interaction with them? Yeah, yeah, I, I, it's, a, it's a ladder, but it always starts with description. And then if this, and then it says, well, here's, the, here's what's going on. And then they sound like they got a pretty good handle on it. I said, well, what do you think? It's, it's a description and then assessment. Well, what's going on? Well, uh, the code's getting too complicated. The, the customer's very unhappy, or whatever it happened with the situation. Okay, then what should we do? But it's in that sequence. And the reason you do that in that sequence is because you're moving from something that feels very safe. Description from description feels very safe. Description is not processed in a part of our brain that's connected to emotions. Decisions pass through an emotional part of our brain before they're processed, as they're being processed. So all decisions are emotional. And so if you watch a, a house show or uh, a reality TV couple bachelor show or anything like that those people don't say well i've done some analysis and it's you know so many square feet blah 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 they, don't, they say i see my family living there oh it feels right for me or that person just seems it's it's emotional these are the most important decisions people make in their lives and it's in some cases it may be overly emotional but emotional means it has to be safe to be there it has to be safe for me to express those emotions. And we can practice safety and we can test how safe does this person feel by, well, let's go, well, just tell me about it. Almost everyone was happy to tell you more. So we always start there. It's not a light switch. And especially now where you have distributed teams. So you don't see everything that they see. You don't know everything that they know. And the idea is you want the team to operate and make decisions based on what everybody sees and knows first. The correct decision will happen. What, what, what we normally do is we make a decision based on what I see and know and then convince everyone else to do what I think is right. But I'm only seeing a tiny uh, thing. On the submarine, we have a periscope. We see the outside world through this little tiny lens. I'm only looking at 16 degrees on the horizon. And it's a perfect metaphor for how we typically operate in the world. And then when we ask our team, I got someone looking behind me, left and right, and they go, oh no, there's other things out here. With um, the description and the language, every, everything about leadership is language, you talk about share a voice and with distributed teams that you were just touching on. My personal experience has been that's become even harder actually with distributed teams. It's harder to read body language. I mean, share a voice is hard enough as it is in person. Um, but I, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. We do these analyses of industrial accidents, especially ones where there's a, a transcript of the team. And uh, airplanes have black boxes, but ships do too. And I like the ones from ships because they're typically much longer 
than an airplane transaction. So there's a ship that ran into a hurricane, sailed into a hurricane, sank, all 33 people lost their lives, all the way back in 2015 with all modern equipment. And you're like, well, how could this happen? Well, we have the black box. Now, one thing's very interesting. When you analyze it, so you look at, okay, I want to look at every time that there's three people on the, normally there's two people on the bridge, the person steering and then an officer who's giving directions. And then sometimes the captain's on the bridge. So I'm looking at a three-person situation, captain, officer, crewman. And we counted the number of words that everybody said. And in every case, it didn't matter which watt section, there are three different watt sections, the captain always said more than 50% of the words. The officer said almost all the rest of the words, and the crewman said less than 5%. And if you match that with their salaries, it almost exactly matches their salaries, the ratios. What happens is we seem to have this instinctive programming that you get to say the number of words proportionate to the salary that you have. And as a result, we overweighted to the hippo, highest paid person's opinion. There's two reasons why you don't want to go with a highest paid person's opinion. Number one, they could be wrong. Number two is once the highest paid person makes a decision, their ego is attached to that decision. And this is for anybody. It doesn't matter whether you're highest, middle, low, whatever. But you, once you make a decision, your ego attaches to that decision, becomes part of you, part of your ego. And you're less likely to see that decision dispassionate. You're less likely to walk away from it. And then as evidence grows that the decision is bad, instead of saying, no, 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 okay, we got to revisit this, you, we double down. And the classic case is the U.S., United States involvement in Vietnam back in the 60s. And for, first of all, there were a thousand specialists, trainees, and then a few of those got killed. And then we more went in and more went in and more went in and more went in. And so there's this like sunk cost fallacy that I got to follow bad decisions with more bad decisions I, because, because it's become part of me. So you don't want to do that. What, what happens is if the decision is made, and I mean the person signs the form and it's done, it's made. In the middle of the organization, what we call it is we've separated the decision maker from the decision evaluator. Now it's easy for me. We could always look at other people's decisions and see how screwed up they are. One of my favorite games is figuring out how to raise other people's children better than they figure out how to raise. Then I look at my own, uh, and, I'm, and I'm sure it's the other way around too. So they can see all the things I'm screwing up. Uh, so, so there's something about that. So you want to structure the organization so that you take advantage of that human ability to see from a different perspective these decisions. And share a voice is one of them. So when you level the share of voice, you'll hear more from other people. And number one, if you're the leader, you're probably talking too much. You're probably eating too much of the air. And so you need to suppress your own share of voice. I mean, it kind of goes without saying, other people will speak more when you speak less. Now, this was hard for me because I'd be silent and people would look at me and they would want me to say something. And I wouldn't even say, no, 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 it's time for you to speak. I would just be silent and just kind of and wait in that awkward side. Finally, someone would start speaking up and then I would reward and acknowledge that. Mm. Do you find, I mean, in the early days, I think you're probably, you're obviously very practiced at it now. In the early days, did you find it hard to actually change your mind? Like you go into a meeting like that you know what you want to do and you talk about this in the book as well yeah that that's what leaders so often do is they're trying to coerce people into their way of thinking so how does a leader actually shift that mindset to say 
my mind could actually be changed at the end of this meeting? And also, what if their mind isn't changed? And what if you go in with an, a way you want to do it, you listen to what everyone has to say, and you still think your way of doing it is the best? That's fine. Then do it. But you've, now you've, you're doing it with the full knowledge of what everybody knows. Hmm. And it may, it may be the best. And you may modify and say, okay, we're going to still do it, but we're going to take some uh, we're going to put some safety nets in place here, here, and here because of what you guys are, are telling me. It's very difficult. I don't know about everybody else, but for me, as soon as I hear about a problem, my, I, my brain is always like, I know the answer. I've seen this before. I know what we need to do. And I try and suppress that. So then when we have the conversation, look, your brain is going to do that. You can't stop that. But what you can affect is what comes out of your mouth next. And I would pretend... I call it a tell me time box, which means for a certain period of time, 30 as long as sort of the whole 30 seconds, that I'm just gonna be curious. So I can only ask questions to understand the other person's position more for some period of time. And it's a time box, it's not gonna be forever. And at the end, I if I'm the leader and I get to make the decision, then I don't have to agree with you. I'm not saying that. Not everybody is gonna have a better idea, but you wanna make the decision after you know what they know what happens is we have certain wiring as human beings. So for example, we tend to believe the thing that the most, pe most people believe is true. So if nine people on a team say one thing and one person says something else, even though it may be 50-50 in terms of credibility, our brains are wired so that we're gonna go, we're gonna believe the nine. And uh, this is something that, again, you can work against, and this is why you want to be able to let everyone speak up. Because what will normally happen is if nine people are saying one thing, the 10th person isn't even going to speak up. You, just, you were deprived of what they knew. There's a, there's a great scene in World War Z, which was a good book, but not such a great movie. With, but anyway, where they, uh, he's, uh, he's asking the Israelis how they decided to build a wall, and they had this thing where the, uh, the 10th person, if everyone agreed on one thing, the 10th person had to disagree. It's a great method of introducing dissent. And it turns out only one person disagreeing makes it safe for everybody to disagree. The key is how does the group react to somebody disagreeing? Explain how they're wrong, they're short-sighted, or do we lean in with curiosity? Oh, tell me that. I can't tell you how many meetings I've sat in on watching senior, senior executives. And as soon as someone disagrees, oh, no, no, let me explain. We'll have just talked about being curious. It's weird. We're just programmed. I, I think it basically activates a fight, flight, or freeze mechanism. And so that's how we're programmed to respond. There's this fear that the group will then lean over to that, that opinion that the leader doesn't agree with, potentially. Exactly. Well, right. And the problem is we view, our, we view ourselves as leaders as decision makers, which is not the right perspective, in my opinion. The leader is a maker of a decision-making factory. I'm the architect of creating a structure and a way of interacting among my team so that decisions come out. All organizations, we're making two products. Let's say we're an automobile manufacturer. We're making the cars, and then we're producing decisions that help us improve our process for making the cars and or what kind of cars we're going to make and that kind of stuff. So it's always two-dimensional. Too often we say, oh, I'll be the decision maker. This is the industrial model. I'll be the decision maker. You be the, the doers. You, you do what I decide for you to do. Once you think that, leadership is coercion. 
because all day long I'm getting other people to do something that they didn't choose to do in a way that they didn't choose to do it. And so we have all these little things in language. And I hear it all the time. Blah, 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 right? Blah, blah, blah. Does that make sense? Blah, 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 blah. We good here? Well, why did, like, why did we add those little phrases at the end? It's just because it's just another little push to say, it's a signal that says, you're supposed to do what you're told. I'm not really interested in true dissent versus, okay, if I had to make a decision right now, this is what we would do. How could that go wrong? What am I missing? That's inviting this, that's inviting dissent. Six months from now, let's imagine this whole thing went south. What would be the most likely reason? Those are the kind of questions you want to be asking about important decisions. You talk about red work and blue work in the book, and it all ties together. But that's something actually at Leastman, we've, we've really latched onto that and been looking at how we can make sure job descriptions include the words yeah, that you included. I love it. Yeah, so I've been looking at your list, but I'd love to tell us a bit about red work and blue work and the importance of it. Humans use our brains in two different ways, and both are important. The first way is we focus on a task. I'm doing something. It's moving parts on an assembly line. I'm writing code. It's not like my brain is turned off, but I'm using it in a way that's very focused on a, on a task. And focus means I'm excluding, deliberately excluding, unnecessary and unwelcome intrusions into that focus. But the other way we use our brain is when we're gonna make decisions. And when we're making decisions, I wanna flip it 180 degrees. Now I wanna welcome all those things that I've been excluding because that will make the decision better. That will make it stronger. The problem is in most organizations, since we don't differentiate between red work, which is the, what I call the focus work, and blue work, which is what I call the reflective thinking work, we're sort of focused and then we're sort of expansive. Whereas in an organization where you can make that distinction, then you could be super focused because you know there's going to be a time when I'm going to pause and be super expansive. If you don't know that we're ever going to pause and actually reflect upon things, then you always need to reserve part of your brain. You can't be 100% focused because you'll lose track of time and you'll be chopping down the wrong forest for days without realizing it. And you're worried, like, am I chopping every once in a while? Am I just chopping on the wrong? Nah, just keep chopping. Versus if you say, look, we're going to chop for two weeks. Then I can put everything into chopping. And then in two weeks, I'll say, okay, are we in the right forest? This, like, we need to change, redirect, or whatever. So that's the idea. And I, as I go through my life, I can feel it. And this, this plays out on a day-to-day -day basis. It plays out monthly. And it plays out over the course of your life. And our education system is designed so that we're expansive and learning early in our life. Which, which matches when our brain is most adaptive and growing. And then you say, well, you graduated from uni, now go work for the next 40 years. In other words, do so a little bit of blue work learning and then red work, do it. And I think in our lives, we need to pause and reflect. And some professions have things like sabbaticals and Bill Gates went on his think week. And sometimes people use holiday this way. Mm. The idea is, be super, super expansive when you're pausing for blue work. And it all starts from the ability to, to stop the pressure of the clock. The production clock is the thing that keeps us from being really reflective. Everyone's had the experience, oh, I, had, I was out on a run, pop, the idea came into my head, or I was in the shower and pop, the idea. It's because we've, removed, we've, we've taken the production pressure, the stress of that away, your brain is relaxed, 
And now it's able to connect things that it wasn't able to connect before. Super powerful. It's, I think it's actually a really revolutionary idea for right now because I think the biggest blocker of blue work is our phones. And oh my God. <laughs> yeah, so even during this thing, my phone was on Audible and I tried to, I've tried to figure out every little thing that pops up on my phone and figure out how to turn them all off. I could drive my wife crazy. She's like, oh, you have 12 texts. I said, great. When it's my time, on my time, I'll look at them and I'll respond yeah. to them. And like it drives yeah. you crazy. No, I try to use my phone in the same way, but very few people do. And I think it's, you know, much more so than 15 years ago. You don't even stand in line anymore at a store and get that blue thinking time like you once right. did because you're automatically just right on there. And so I check out. What they've done is they pushed the red work to you. Yeah. They got you doing the red work. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear, lastly, David, just if you, if you could write one more chapter of your book, let's say you got to write a chapter, post-pandemic chapter, maybe it has to do with that, maybe it doesn't, what would you write? Yeah, so for leadership as language, the interesting thing about the um, story of the ship, which we profile mm -hmm. in the book, which I didn't realize, it's obvious, but I didn't realize until somebody else pointed it out. It turns out that there's some critical moments when the crew calls the captain to make a diversion. They're sailing near the Bahamas, but they're on the wrong side. And they have an opportunity to go through and cross to the other side, the, the safer side, where the waves won't be nearly as bad. So there are these phone calls that the crew makes to the captain that are ultimately ineffective, and they end up steaming along the original plan. So even though they're all on the same ship, it's remote work. They're, they're dealing with the captain over the phone and they're trying to paint a picture using just words. And then they're trying to get a decision and then an assessment. Hey, here's where we are. Here's what the situation is. Here's where I think the storm is. There was uncertainty about where the storm is and even more about where, where it was going to, what direction it was going. And we see the hurricane models. It's always a ban. And it just drives home the importance of precise language. So I guess I would spend more time on, on I, I'm a huge fan of description. Uh, sometimes in the corporate workshops, we'd have one person describe something and the other person, they look at a picture, they describe it, the other person draws it. And then it's kind of fun to see how, how different it is. You can practice it, uh, giving people directions just in the car. And so for example, when we park cars, most people say, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, stop. That's the industrial age way of doing it. Because what you're doing is you're giving them orders and the stop comes without any warning versus a much better way to do it. This is how they park airplanes is you put your hands a certain distance apart, which show how far it is to the obstacle and you bring them together. And now you're providing information and the person naturally will put less gas and start applying the brake a little bit more and they'll just grab and they can come right into within an inch and park the car right there and not even touch the thing. But that's not what most people do. Have you ever had the annoying person? You're trying to come out of a parking lot and the annoying person is like waving at you, just like you don't know what you're I'm not doing what you're doing. And they're and for you it's probably a man, right? <laughs> come on. Yeah. Come on. No, I, I when I see that it's safe, I will come out, not just because you're telling me. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, David. I really liked the bits where you did talk about how they tried to steer it a different direction because I think it yeah. is so important. It made me think of the McKinsey principle of um, the obligation to dissent. And I don't know if you've come across that before. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I'm a little bit nervous about that. I mean, I think here's the thing. If I hear the team talking about it's our obligation to dissent if we know that something's wrong, and I hear leaders never talk about it, and the leaders are talking about my obligation is to create an environment where it's safe to dissent. That's healthy. When I hear the opposite, that's trouble. When the leaders say, well, it's your obligation to dissent, and the, and the team's like, well, it's your obligation to make it okay to dissent, that those people are sunk. So it's always about what my side of the equation is. Yeah, the environment you're setting up. No, that's really, that's actually really powerful. I've never heard it put like that. You know, in my family, in my expanded family, we have people with different levels of introversion and bordering on autism. You go to them and say, no, you got to speak up. It doesn't work. It's bullying. And but somehow it's okay at work it, right it, here. Because I, th I think I'm like borderline. But that's so interesting to me because you surely, you would have spent your whole career, you know, prior to this kind of life-changing experience that you had being yelled at, <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> I know, it sucked. I hated it. I hated it. And it was funny. When, the day I got out of the Navy... Uh, my last day, so it was my first day where I, I could, I was having breakfast and the sun was already up and uh, sitting there and I was like, it's like all this stress of leaving my body and looked at my wife and I said, you know, I just don't really like being told what to do. And she's like, no, duh. <laughs> I can't believe you lasted that long. So. It's like you chose the wrong career, honey. <laughs> yeah, I chose the wrong career. And I, I'm very proud of uh, the commitment that I made, but it was very hard for me. I always felt like I, like a bit of an outsider. I always see things like, why are we doing it? Oh, shut up and just, that's how we do it. Um, well, thank you so, so much, David. This has been amazing. Appreciate Cheers. it. And hope you have a great day in Florida. Enjoy the sun. Thank you. <laughs> um, we'll talk again, again one day, next, uh, your next book. Yeah, all right, thanks, I'll get working. Well, look, I hope that's got you thinking. And if you have a suggestion for a subject you'd like me to probe or someone you think I should be talking to, please feel free to let me know. You can, of course, connect with me or anyone of the Leesman team via any of the usual channels. And to stay up to date with our thinking, just head to leesmanindex.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>